You are now listening to Trillionaires, a race ahead. Great recession did not affect everyone in the same way. A new report shows that the wealth gap between whites, blacks, and Hispanics are the widest they've been since the government started keeping track 25 years ago. What's good, everybody? Welcome to Trillionaires, a race ahead, a podcast that explores how politics, racism, and economics all contribute to the racial wealth divide in America. I'm your lovely host, Danny Blue. And happy 2020, man. It's been some time since the last episode with the holidays, with traveling, and and just honestly just needing to unwind uh, and refocus and recharge. Um, I just needed that time, and we're back. January 2020, New Trillionaires, Episode 8, and I'm extremely excited for all those that have shared the show, that have hit me up asking when the next one's coming, uh, that's provided feedback on topics that you wanted to hear from me. Thank you. And this show is going to be largely based around listener feedback. If you guys wanted me to explore Black Wall Street, give you some historical perspective on it, tell you about what happened there, and how... That Greenwood District of Tulsa in the 1920s can act as a blueprint for black Americans today. If you go through the first seven episodes, it's going to sound a little bit the same about what I've been preaching. Um, But Tulsa and the Greenwood District is just a manifestation on, yo, this can actually happen. So I'm looking forward to it. I enjoy researching and preparing for this show and learned a lot. And hopefully you'll learn a lot too. And we can make some progress as a people, man. So you know the drill. Put on your thinking caps, turn the volume up, and let's get into this week's episode. We could hear him from the attic talk to him. said, negative, you have a gun? I think he said no. And he, he said, don't set my house on fire, please. He didn't tell him why, but... After he left, not long after he left, to set it on fire, and we had to scramble down to her. And his sister, the six years old, she said, is the world on fire, Kenny? I said, I don't know, but we're in trouble, deep trouble. From 1865 to 1920, Oklahoma had been known as a safe haven for black folks. During this time, over 50 black towns have been founded in the state. And when I say founded, these are areas within Oklahoma that are owned and controlled by black people. One of the most prominent areas in Oklahoma during this time was an area called the Greenwood District in North Tulsa. This area was 40 acres of land been founded by a man by the name of O.W. Gurley, who had bought this land on a former Indian territory. And it had been made available because, if you guys don't know, Native Americans used to enslave black people too. And the, the former slaves of these tribes in this area had integrated into community. So essentially, you could say they were, they were seen as, quote unquote, Native Americans and was able to take ownership of this land in Greenwood. So O.W. Gurley buys this land, uh, 40 acres, and he has a vision of building a town for black people by black people. The first 
business that uh, he started in the area was a boarding house. Obviously, people need somewhere to live. So these former um, enslaved blacks and sharecroppers that had fled to the area had had somewhere to live. That was the, the first business. And Gurley would actually tell people that if they wanted to start a business in Greenwood, he would loan them the money. Now, this is this is point number one. Previous episodes, I had talked about the need for us to change our mindset and shift to what I was calling a think black first mindset. And T-shirts are going to be coming soon. Shameless plug. But a think first black mindset in which we think about black owned businesses. We think about uh, just black people first when we have a need. This is proof that that could be successful. So you have someone who was wealthy in the 1860s after slavery, a black man that is wealthy at this time. He knew that there was no opportunities for him elsewhere in America, that he was going to be a victim of racism, of oppression, and that he didn't want to rely on white folks for anything. So he said, you know what? I'm going to use my money and create a community for my people. Why is that important? Because he could have easily took his money and said, you know, fuck, fuck black people. I got mine. You got to get yours, which is the mindset that many of the, the successful and elite in our community have today. This crab in a barrel syndrome where we see one person that gets successful and they don't pay it forward. Or we see people that are successful and they don't think about their own. Jay-Z, I think, was once quoted and said, my motivation to the hood is being able to show them that you can make it out, which is, yeah, that's cool and all. But what if a group of Jay-Z, Beyonce, Diddy, LeBron, um, uh, entertainers, Kevin Hart, Dave Chappelle. I mean, any of these multimillionaires, Oprah, and they, and they all banded together and said, you know what? Let's buy up some land in Detroit or let's buy up a community in Detroit or anywhere. And let's make this an area for black people by black people. We're going to put some businesses there, but let's put a, let's, we're going to put a, a, a record label there. We'll have, um, we'll have a, a sports agency there. We'll have some, some grocery stores there. It, it, we'll build some safe and equitable housing and affordable housing there. And this is going to be an area that's promoted for black people to come and thrive. And you know what? We'll also have a, a, we'll start a bank or a, 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 a lend and we'll act as private lenders and we'll have a business together in which people in the community can come to us. If they want to start a business, it's a good idea. They can come to us directly for the money and we'll loan them the money to start a business. This isn't just fantasy. This is something that was going on in the 1860s and early 1900s in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So if it can happen then, 
it can't happen now with technology, with us being more connected than others and with with more millionaires than than ever before in any time. You telling me that can't happen again? With the a trillion and a half dollars of consumer dollars from black folks that circulate each year. You can't tell me that this can't happen today. That's I call bullshit. But what first blueprint step number one, what first needs to change the mindset, right? If the mindset can change, the rest of the steps are easy to follow. Step one is the establishment of a community of what the code of conduct with guidelines that's vertically integrated and works together. O.W. Gurley bought the land, established a community, started a business, and then started a separate business to help others in the community start businesses in the community without the help of anyone else. This was black folks working together. O.W. Gurley knew, look, I know if I build this boarding house, I'm going to get money from black folks. They're going to spend their money with me. They're going to start to make a little money. They're going to have ideas and and see the need. And they're going to want to start businesses. I can loan them that money. And the business goes right back into the community. All this money is is circulating 10 to 12 times. It is said that the money in, in Black Wall Street would bounce 10 to 12 times. That means money from me is going to 10 to 12 other black folks before it even leaves the community to go outside of it. That is power. That is progress. We've been lied to that America has progressed so much since civil rights. We've been lied to. We've progressed socially. Fantastic. I can work amongst white folks. I can live amongst white folks. I can go to the same facilities as white folks. I can shop at the same stores as white folks. Whoopity fucking do. But what's the what's the famous quote? What 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 does it mean that I can sit at the same lunch counter as you if I can't afford to buy a damn hamburger? What does that mean? It's progress. At a surface level. True progress is economic power. And I want to stress this again before I get back into Black Wall Street. I'm sorry for going off on a tangent, but this is a great point that I need you guys to grasp. This was one man, one wealthy man in the 1800s after slavery that did this. And had the mindset to Build something for black people by black people. Now, after this, after Gurley had established Greenwood, other entrepreneurs followed suit. One by the name of uh, J.B. Stratford, who was born a slave and later became a lawyer, moved to the area in the late 1800s and built a hotel bearing his name. It was the largest black owned hotel in the country at the time. 
And he was quoted as believing that blacks had a better chance of economic progress if they pulled their resources together. It had took some time before Greenwood had become truly self-contained and reliant, but progress was being made. There was a fellow by the name of A.J. Smitherin, who was a publisher who founded the Tulsa Star, which was a Black-owned newspaper headquartered in Greenwood. And that became the media instrument that was used in establishing social consciousness. It was regularly informing Blacks about their rights, about court rulings, about legislation that would be both beneficial and harmful to the community. Again, this was in the late 1800s to 1920. So this is still Jim Crow South. Racism is is rampant. The KKK is running rampant. I mean, so for a community to have one, you had the community, the land, right? You had housing. You have businesses in which blacks could work in, spend their money at. You have media, a newspaper that could control the narrative that they were given. This is powerful stuff. Just to provide a little more insight into how powerful this area was. There was an area called Greenwood Avenue think the entire district of Greenwood was 35 blocks and there were luxury shops, restaurants, grocery stores, hotels, uh, jewelry stores, clothing stores, multiple movie theaters, barber shops, lab- a library, pool halls, nightclubs, doctor's offices, lawyer's offices, dentist offices, its own school system, multiple schools, a post office, a savings and loan bank, a hospital, and their own bus and taxi service. All black owned. It was home for far less affluent African-Americans. Look, everybody wasn't wealthy now. Like everybody wasn't, you know, rich and, and, and living good. There were some working class people as well, but that's just the nature of uh, our economy as well. There were still people that worked as janitors, dishwashers, um, um, uh, shoe shiners, et cetera. But it's important that it was all black owned. When your money's bouncing 10 to 12 and and some reports even said 19 times when Greenwood was fully established with all these different businesses. It was said that at its peak, the money bounced 19 times before leaving the community to add some more comparison to just how important that is today, Hispanics in America, their money in their community usually uh, bounces about eight to 10 times. Asians 
is about um, 12 times. Jewish communities, about 16 to 18 times. Whites, about 10 to 12 times. Black money in our community doesn't even bounce one time before it leaves. Not even once before it leaves. It's usually, I think, the last report I saw was six hours. Six hours before. That means when you get paid within six hours, you're probably spending your money with someone who doesn't look like you. So the blueprint is here, right? Tulsa, this Greenwood district, the blueprint is laid. We know this. This is just an example. We know what we need to do. Again, it starts in the mind. If you have this mindset to think about black people first, to put black people on a pedestal, literally on a pedestal, you have to see pride in spending money, spending money with a black business. And if you're working for a black business, you have to see pride in that. And you cannot take your money outside of our community unless you absolutely have to. But we as a community also have to make it easy. This is bullet point number two. What segregation was so great in doing is separating us economically. It opened up the floodgates to suburbs, to to malls, to white areas and shops. And it afforded us, quote unquote, access to these areas. So you start to take your money outside of your community. You start to work outside of your community. You want to live further and further away from your community. So black areas are spread out across the city. You have Charlotte. You got the east side where there's black folks. You got the west side where there's black folks. North and south, downtown, usually don't see a lot. But what if you only had one area where all the black people live? It would make it easier for us to have a thriving community. So it takes Black businesses working with other black businesses that complement their services and saying, yo, let's let's pull our resources together and be in an area that is closer to where our people are. And let's use that money that we're making to thus make this area and build it up to be safe and affordable for our people to live in. So they don't have to make a decision of driving 30 minutes across town to support a black restaurant. They don't have to make the decision of driving 30 minutes across town to, um, you know, support a black owned clothing company or support a black doctor. We have to make it easier by pulling our resources together and working together. We can't we can't see this 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 competitive nature is ingrained in us because we're in a capitalist society and it teaches us that we must compete. And we and we do. We have to compete. But the competition doesn't have to be individualized. A fist is much stronger than five 
fingers that are separated. If we can go to a doctor, if we can go to uh, a lawyer, if we can go to uh, a, um, a juice, a, ju- a juice bar, a farmer, uh, a restaurant, uh, someone who owns a movie theater, a bar, we can create areas that become prominent black communities where there's businesses, there's housing, and there are black people that want to work and spend their money together. It's really not that hard if you change your mindset. I'm going I'm to continue to go back to that because I want y'all to really, I want to really stress this point. Tulsa wouldn't be, um, Black Wall Street, Greenwood, North Tulsa would not be what it was at that time if these men did not have a mindset to think about their people first, period. And the, it wouldn't have grown to be what it is if the people in the area didn't have that same mindset. This is why this podcast is so fun for me is because I hope that it could serve as just uh the motivation for someone to change their habits, to change how they think and how they view um, black people in America. And especially for our community. That's why, man, please, please continue to share this um, with folks because it's, it's extremely important that we get this message. Now back to black wall street, what happened that led to the demise of the area? So it wasn't long before the affluent blacks had attracted the attention of the whites. Now, to provide you a little bit additional context, the north side and the south side of Tulsa, the north side was where Greenwood was, was separated from the south side via train tracks. So this was literally a segregated community. Um, but after the, the war... Um, white veterans were coming back from after World War One. They couldn't get jobs. And essentially, they resented the upscale lifestyle of the people they deemed to be, quote unquote, inferior. You know how black folks are. We we dress the best. Uh, we're going to be flamboyant. We're going to be uh, we're going to be having a good time. So. They resented these black folks for simply being themselves and being able to take care of themselves. Jealousy would be an appropriate word to say, especially if you're you're a poor white and you're looking over and you see a bunch of large homes owned by black folks. You see a bunch of businesses. You see a bunch of people that are spending money in those businesses that have jobs, that have a community, that are all working together, that have jewelry, um, nice things, uh, nice clothes. You're going to you're going to resent that and think, yo, if I've been conditioned to think that these people are inferior, why do they have this? And I don't. So that largely led to the resurgence of the KKK in the area. And blacks in Greenwood have feared that um, racial violence and the removal of their voting rights would occur. So after the summer of 1919, which was 
uh, called the Red Summer, there were a lot of anti-black riots that had erupted in cities like Chicago um, and Detroit and Tulsa even. And in response to that, the Tulsa Star, which was, again, the Black-owned newspaper in Greenwood, had encouraged Blacks to, to take up arms, which I think that shameless plug that more black folks need to learn how to shoot guns and need to have um, concealed to uh, carry permits, please. Uh, but the Tulsa Star had encouraged black folks to take up arms and show up to courthouses and jails to make sure that the blacks who were on trial were not taken and killed by white lynch mobs. This was a la where, you know, people like the Black Panthers kind of got their framework from being able to make sure that we control what goes on in our communities ourselves. We don't want you coming in here and unjustly policing our community. We're going to take up arms and we're going to make sure that our people are defended. Now, in 1921, I believe it was May, there had been a 19-year-old young man. His name was Dick Rowland. He was a black shoe shiner in a building called the Drexel Building. Now, this was a building that was not in Greenwood. This was outside of Greenwood. And it was in, in Tulsa's downtown area. But this building was a segregated building. It only had one bathroom. So Dick Rowland was allowed to go to the top floor to utilize the bathroom. He's getting an elevator. There's a 17-year-old white girl who is an elevator operator by the name of Sarah Page. The story goes that Dick Rowland stumbled um, to break his fall, had stuck his hand out to kind of grab on to uh, Sarah Page to prevent himself from falling. She screamed rape and he was arrested. The newspapers, the white newspapers has said that, um, you know, Sarah Page had been sexually assaulted. She had been beaten by Dick Rowland. She had scratches on her and scars. All those things were not true. To add some added context to the to the quote unquote rape narrative that many black men faced at the time when um, coming across white women. Birth of a Nation, a film that came out at this time, and it had a scene in it in which there was a white actor in blackface that was almost personified as an animal or a, a savage almost that was only after white women. He only wanted to 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 be with a white woman. So the only way to do that was to force himself on two white women. So there was a, a rape scene in this Birth of a Nation film with a, an actor who was personified as being black. So this film was shown all across the country and largely helped to lead to the resurgence of the KKK as well. But now you see a a newspaper using that narrative to to influence the actions of white men in the area that had already seen black people as inferior 
and now thought that they were all rapists. And that is a stigma that black men still face to this day. So newspapers write all these false stories and um, an angry mob is, is formed and they went to the courthouse and demand that the sheriff hand over Roland to them. They wanted to kill him. A group of 25 armed black men went to the courthouse to guard Roland. As word of the possible lynching spread, the group had grew to about 75 to 100 blacks. But the angry mob had been upwards to 1,500 white men. The story goes that a a tussle had ensued between a, a white man and a black man. A gun was shot. And all hell broke loose. The mobs of the armed white men started to shoot and kill blacks, literally shoot and kill them in the street. And from there, went over into Greenwood with the help of planes, with the help of the the mayor and local law enforcement. This mob had grew, went into Greenwood and started to destroy the area. They robbed the homes of all their possessions and then set them on fire. They robbed the businesses of all the money in their possessions, set them on fire, and shot and killed any black person that got in the way. This is men, women, and children. Millions of dollars in property damage was done with no help from the city. The, the uh, telephone lines had been, had been cut. The telegraph offices had been shut down. The railroad tracks had been blockaded. So there was literally no way for blacks in the area to communicate what was going on to outside agencies to get assistance. This riot lasted over the span of two days. Over 35 city blocks were burned and destroyed by these white citizens. None of them were ever charged. None of them were ever held responsible. The city never did anything to to compensate these business owners and homeowners for the loss of their property. Insurance claims were denied. So literally the blacks were ran out of the area. And their community have been destroyed. Now, when I talk about us having a, a, a truly independent economic community, many people have brought, well, what about Black Wall Street? You know, what, you know, if we get anything, they just going to try to take it anyway. And I don't I don't agree with that. I mean, at this time, you have a lot of things that are heightened. I mean, this is Jim Crow. This is after after the Civil War, post-slavery, the KKK is prominent. I mean, you have a lot of things socially going on in the country that um, contributed to this massacre. Uh, And I think one of the largest acts of domestic terrorism in our country's history that doesn't get spoken about. But I don't think that could happen today. I think um, with 
technology being what it was, what it is, I'm sorry, our ability to communicate um, with people in different areas and different cities uh, quicker than ever, our ability that we know so much more now, um, the resources that we have now now are even greater than they were then. Uh, I think that we can build another Black Wall Street. We can build multiple Black Wall Streets. But I think it would be good just to start with with with, with one area, whether that's the city, whether that's the the most the, the wealthiest blacks in every major black city, Baltimore, Detroit, Charlotte, Atlanta, um, DC, Chicago. I mean, if 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 business owners, black business owners in these cities that had complementary services or or businesses, businesses that provided necessities. Businesses that remember an episode, I think it was episode six, where I talked about the different markets in which blacks spend the most money anyway. If we could have communities that are set uh, and based around these industries that have complementary services around them that can provide jobs and housing for our people. We can be truly self-sufficient and we don't need to be self-sufficient in the sense of how it was back then. Right. We could have a a micro economy that acts in the larger micro economy. We're going to still need to go to to um, other communities for things and 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 to to buy things but if we can have a community that largely provides everything that we need we could truly start to make progress in this country i'm going to talk about this this is going to be part one of a two-part episode in which I go through, well, it's probably going to be more than two parts, but I'm going to go through Dr. Claude Anderson's foundation of powernomics. The first being community, which is what this episode is about. The next is economics and politics, because we as a people have, have, have turned to the government and really relied on them to do things that we could be doing for ourselves. That was a failure of the civil rights movement. And, 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 and Martin Luther King even said it himself that he feels as if he led his people into a burning house. He put social progress before economics and knows that they can never be truly free. And I'm paraphrasing the quote, but that was that was what I got from it. So I think we need to take a step back from being so involved politically um, that we need to take care of home first. We need to take care of our, ourselves and our communities and, again, change our mindsets so that we can start to lay this blueprint to build Black Wall Streets across this country, man. So I hope you like this episode. That's all I got. I hope I didn't ramble too much. If you found value in it, man, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Share with a friend, man. And remember, black pride does not equal. Say it's work that I won't say it's fair. Find your purpose or you wasting air. Fuck it though, y'all niggas scared. Eyes open, I can see it clear. They don't make them bar none. They don't make them real. They don't make it where I'm from. They don't take it here. They ain't seeing due time. I be making meals. 
Bossed up in this game, I've been making deals. Get your lawyer on the phone, we can make it real. I got checks and balance, I flex dramatic.